The 109th QuackCast, I've pretty much given up on the introductions to this that I used to do forever and ever at the beginning. This one is called One Flew Into the Cuckoo's Nest. I don't seem to be able to get it straight in my mind. Kinkisi, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Influenza has been pretty aggressive this year. I like going to Google Flu Trends as well as the CDC flu site to see what flu is doing. Using Google searches as a surrogate for infections is an interesting technique that public health officials have tried with less success than other illnesses, but it is not without its utility. Behaviors in populations can predict a problem. My favorite example is the first hint of the 1993 massive cryptosporidia diarrhea outbreak in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, was the sudden shortage of kaopectate and Pepto-Bismol. It appears that there are more patients with flu-like symptoms this year than at the height of the H1N1 epidemic in 2009. We have had lots of flu-like illness, and per the CDC, there are buckets of confirmed influenza. But so far this season, while probably having more cases than 2009, the outbreak is clinically not the same. Compare and contrast the two words that define undergraduate liberal arts essay assignments. Get out your blue books and compare and contrast influenza outbreaks from 2009 and 2013. Or should I say 2013? You have one hour. The H1N1 epidemic was due to, well, influenza A, H1N1. Only about 1% of the isolates are currently H1N1, so presumptively almost everyone is immune to that particular strain of the virus from either prior infection or vaccination. That is probably what ends most epidemics. The herd has immunity, and the virus can no longer spread in a population. And so the flu will go into hiding in swine populations, biding its time until the population and genetic shift render the population susceptible again. In the season, it is influenza A, H3N2, and influenza B that are causing most of the disease. A lot of disease. Emergency rooms are, have seen an increase in influenza-like illness and is often caused by, actually, influenza. Go figure. In my hospital, specimens positive for influenza jumped from 2% of submitted specimens to 26% positive and we keep running out of the PCR assay tests. Despite the increase in cases, it is remarkable for what we are not seeing. While people are being admitted to the hospital with flu, and deaths have been increasing, unlike the H1N1 epidemic, the ICU is not being filled with influenza patients on a ventilator. The most remarkable aspect of the 2009 outbreak, from my perspective, was how lucky we were. It still amazes me. We were maxed out in every ICU and every hospital. All ICU beds and ventilators were in use. If a patient had come through the door needing a ventilator, we didn't have one to offer. Someone was going to die we might have otherwise saved. And right as we reached our surge capacity, the epidemic peaked. No patients came in needing a ventilator for flu. A bullet that was dodged. This year, we have only had a smattering of patients on a ventilator from influenza. No young people dying. 20 to 30-year-olds, that is. There have been over 20 pediatric deaths. No flu encephalitis. 
We had two deaths at one of my hospital from brain involvement in young people and no one on extracorporeal membrane oxygenation from influenza-induced lung failure. No pregnant females with advanced influenza. Lots of morbidity, but different from 2009, it was milder. Of course, we won't know the true impact of this year's flu season for six months after it ends. It is curious how the strains differ in their effects on populations. Maybe the H1N1 has modified the disease for H3N2, since infection and vaccination in H1N1 in some people can result in a universal antibody against influenza. Immunity to influenza is not as simple as one antibody against one strain. Since the hemagglutinin, where the H comes from, and the neuraminidase, where the N comes from, proteins have multiple different areas that can generate an antibody response. Some of these sites are variable and differ every year, but some are highly conserved. And if you are lucky enough to develop antibody against conserved regions of one of these proteins, you could potentially be immune to all influenza A. Or probably there are other factors with the H3N2 virus that result in different clinical manifestations. As I say, it will take a year or two after the researchers have had opportunity to investigate the consequences of the current flu season. I would predict increased mortality this year from flu, and I hope to be wrong, because, quote, the magnitude of the seasonal component is highly correlated with traditional measures of excess mortality and was significantly larger in seasons dominated by influenza H2N2 and H3N2 viruses than in seasons dominated by H1N1 or B viruses. End of quote. So we got a bad strain floating around. But not only from infection, but there's an increased risk of cardiac events. Quote, these data suggest that influenza infections, particularly by A slash H3N2, are directly associated with acute heart-related events in older individuals, end quote. So if, you're, if there is H3N2 floating around, you're more likely to have myocardial infarctions, i.e. heart attacks. At the moment, it looks like we are having widespread flu and flu-like illness, but with less severe morbidity and less moral morality, <laughs> less mortality directly related to the influenza virus. Of course, I speak from the perspective of a hospital-based doctor in Portland, Oregon, and as such, I have a narrow and probably not representative experience. For example, everything is always better in Portland. It will be interesting for someone with access to all the data compare, to compare and contrast the two flu seasons in the years to come. So the one consistent question I get about the flu vaccine is, does it work? Do not ask me that question unless you have at least 10 minutes to kill, because the answer is not yes or no. Some vaccines are quite binary in their answer, and people do like binary answers. Yes or no, good or bad. I get the suspicion that those in the scam reality prefer simple binary answers and do not deal all that well with uncertainty, spectrum, and gradients of answers. Perhaps that is a defining characteristic. Scam proponents seem to like black and white in a world of gray. Does the tetanus vaccine work? Yeah. Everyone who gets the vaccine is protected from tetanus. 
does the influenza vaccine work? Well, it depends on who is vaccinated, which vaccine, what the circulating strains are, and how well the vaccine matches the circulating strain, and what your endpoint of defining works is. I sometimes feel like Bill Clinton. It all depends on what the meaning of is is. Because influenza is, unfortunately, complicated. There's an interesting concept in medicine that is usually not explicitly discussed, but comes up obliquely, and that is the concept of number needed to treat. Sometimes, like pneumonia, you're treating an individual. You have pneumonia, you get antibiotics, you get better. Or the tetanus vaccine, where we are preventing an illness in an individual. Much of the time with prevention, we are not only treating the individual, but also populations. It is an ongoing, interesting difficulty in medicine, how to apply population data to individuals. Because for some interventions, a given individual may or may not benefit from, say, statins or the flu vaccine, whereas populations do. That is one of the strengths and a public relations weakness of modern medicine. Ignoring the individual and treating populations in some circumstances can lead to marked improvement in everyone's health, the old rising tide that lifts all boats approach to public health medicine. And people loathe not being considered a unique and special entity. And you're not. Influenza vaccine is both an intervention for the individual and for populations. Since, as the Google flu trends graphs nicely demonstrate, influenza-like illnesses affect populations and they can do so with remarkable rapidity. If you go to Google Flu Trends, look at the slope of those curves. They are almost vertical. I mean, whoa, that's communicable. Unlike other respiratory viruses, influenza can kill, and it can kill directly, or it can kill indirectly. So while there are 200 causes of flu-like illnesses, Influenza is unique in its ability to routinely cause severe morbidity and mortality. My ICUs do not routinely fill up with rhinovirus or metanumovirus infections and their complications, although there are the occasional new coronaviruses that pop up that do tend to kill a lot of people, at least a high percentage of those who get infected. So with influenza vaccination efficacy, you can have a narrow perspective, does it prevent influenza in an individual, sometimes? Or does it have a more widespread population effects? The problem with other benefits to vaccination is it's kind of like the dog that doesn't bark. Gregory, is there any point to which you wish to draw my attention? Holmes, to the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. Gregory, the dog did nothing in the nighttime. Holmes. That was the curious incident. In part, I do infection control for a living, and we are successful when nothing happens. But people do not notice when nothing occurs. And I have to point out the benefits of events not happening. The potential benefits of flu vaccination are, I don't get influenza. I don't get influenza, and therefore don't give it to my grandmother. I don't get influenza, and I do not pass it on to my hospitalized patients, who tend to die when they acquire influenza in the hospital. I get influenza, but it is mild and I miss less work. 
I get influenza, and because it is mild and less infectious, I don't give it to my grandmother. Because my grandmother doesn't get influenza, she doesn't have an exacerbation of her heart failure or diabetes or COPD and doesn't die of worsening underlying medical problems. Or my grandmother doesn't get the flu and as a result doesn't have a secondary myocardial infarction or bacterial pneumonia and is not hospitalized for those processes and doesn't die as a result. Or my pregnant wife doesn't get the flu from me or due to vaccination and as such does not have a miscarriage or is not admitted to the hospital with acute respiratory failure from influenza. Or my obese uncle doesn't get the flu from me or due to vaccination and is not admitted with ARDS from influenza. So the potential ramifications of not getting the flu are both for the individual and for people in your population. Now I have discussed influenza vaccine multiple times. The question is not if influenza vaccine works, it does. It is the magnitude of the effect and in what populations it is effective that is the question. The preponderance of information suggests that, for most of the endpoints above, the influenza vaccine has beneficial effects. It's not a great vaccine, but it's better than nothing. Then there's the political issue as to whether the bang is worth the buck, whether the benefits of pushing flu vaccines are worth the time and resources. That is a calculus that I am not capable of independently deriving. My sense is the answer is, by and large, yes. And those with more expertise in the area than I say influenza vaccination is cost-effective. I take their word for it. One aspect of the flu season that does not change from year to year is the anti-vaccine crowd, who continue to repeat the same half-truths and misrepresentations. As I keep mentioning, they live in an alternative universe, having quantum jumped into a part of the multiverse where my standards for reality need not apply. Perhaps the highest profile critic of the influenza vaccine is Dr. Thomas Jefferson of the Cochrane Group. He generally takes the narrow perspective on the efficacy of the flu vaccine, that of preventing a case of influenza in an exposed individual, and argues that the clinical trials that demonstrate efficacy are too flawed to make recommendations. I have begged to differ. Dr. Jefferson was recently interviewed on Gary Knoll's radio show. And if you want, you can find the transcript available on the interwebs. It makes for an interesting read, and I have used the opportunity to make some annotations. First, a couple of caveats. First, spoken language is almost certainly not written language, and I've admitted some false starts and stumbles. The few times I have been interviewed, I have greatly appreciated the editing that made me appear more fluent than I actually am. Speaking coherently about complex topics extemporaneously is difficult, and an ability that neither Dr. Jefferson nor Mr. Null have apparently mastered. I would wonder why Dr. Jefferson has chosen to appear on this podcast, since Mr. Null has been so against flu vaccination in the past He's actually gone so far as to sue to prevent the distribution of H1N1 vaccine. Mr. Null is a proponent of alternative medications for cancer, and he's an HIV denialist. 
I suppose an Englishman living in Rome cannot be expected to know who Mr. Null is and what his approach to medical care might be, although a little Google searching quickly finds that Mr. Null is the antithesis of everything science-based medicine supports. And as my dad taught me early, you judge a man by the company he keeps. Still, guilt by association is not the most reliable way to analyze an intellectual position. It is better to evaluate what they say in their own words, or really close. I am no transcriptionist, but I think I got it right. I'm uncertain as to the applicability of copyright here, so rather than cut and paste the actual audio, I'm going to read the transcripts. For those of you driving or operating heavy machinery, be careful. Quote, Mr. Null, let's begin by saying hello to Dr. Thomas Jefferson. Nice to have you with us here today, Dr. Jefferson. Jefferson, hello, Gary. Null, hi. Dr. Jefferson is a former primary care physician from the UK who is now a leading investigator for the infectious disease research at the Cochrane Database Collaboration in Rome. And he's the editor of their acute respiratory infection group, and has been the coordinator of the vaccine field, which reviews existing peer reviews, vaccine research, which determines the accuracy and validity of scientific methodology used in the claims being made. And he's also an editorial board member of the journal Vaccine. And uh, Dr. Jefferson, our biggest concern today is we have been led to believe that everyone beyond age six months should have a flu vaccination. We have been told that these vaccines are safe and effective for everyone. The we have an honest look at the literature. Here's my question. Can we say with certainty, based on good science, independent science, and a gold standard that would include safety and efficacy for pregnant women, for women who might be taking chemotherapy? End of quote. Patients with cancer and or on chemotherapy can get a reasonable serologic response to the vaccine, although there are no studies on clinical efficacy. We do extrapolate from healthy populations to less healthy populations with vaccines. A reasonable approach, but not always reliable. Most of the time, if you develop an immune response to a pathogen, there will be some degree of resistance to that infection, but not always. As in all clinical subsets to be mentioned by Mr. Null, the best approach is for their family and caretakers to be immune and not pass the virus on to those at risk. Mr. Null continues, or maybe on heart medications or statins, end of quote. Now that's probably a key population who should get vaccinated since influenza, particularly the H3 strains, increase the risk for heart attack and vaccinations can likely prevent influenza-related myocardial infarctions. Mr. Null continues, or impaired immune systems, or people on antipsychotic or antidepressant medicines, or the old, or people who are senior citizens in nursing homes, in hospices, in hospitals, people who are suffering from diabetes and are on medications. Can we say all those people will be safe and actually find efficacy and prevent the flu vaccine? End of Mr. Null. The biggest issue for those mentioned is the ongoing problem that those who need protection from influenza the most are those who will respond least to the vaccine. 
From a public health perspective, the best approach for preventing influenza would be to vaccinate the healthy population that serves as a vector for infection. As an example, the use of pneumococcal vaccine in children has led to a marked decrease in invasive disease in adults, and some modeling suggests that schools are the epicenter for the spread of influenza vaccine. So perhaps everybody in school should be vaccinated to decrease the spread of flu. So an important question when discussing flu vaccine efficacy is individual goals or population goals. To paint with a broad brush, those in the anti-vaccine camp have little interest in the concept of helping others through the safe and modestly effective intervention of influenza vaccine. Mr. Knoll continues, that's what we've been told. And I want to know because you have taken time to look at the truth. Jefferson, thank you very much for hosting me on your show, Gary. You asked me about 15 questions in one, so let me start first on pregnant women. When you are talking about pregnant women, you are, of course, not talking about pregnant women, but you are talking about a pregnant woman and the fetus, the unborn baby. Now, a pregnant woman is a healthy adult despite desperate attempts at transforming pregnancy into a deadly disease, end of quote. Pregnancy is a weird state. It is indeed normal, but it has the potential for lots of complications and is somewhat immunosuppressive. While no one in their right mind thinks of pregnancy as a deadly disease, maternal death is common in the developing world. It is estimated to have killed one in a hundred women before the 20th century and currently kills about 24 per hundred thousand. Pregnancy is usually safe in the West, but not always. What you can say about influenza in pregnancy is that pregnant women are more likely to die if they get influenza and they are more likely to miscarry if they get influenza. It was estimated that 1 in 10 first trimester pregnancies were lost during the 1919 pandemic. Babies born during flu epidemics tend to be smaller, have lower lifetime earning potential. Smaller babies during influenza season are perhaps stupider babies. Vaccination not only prevents influenza and by extension death in the mother, but it also prevents miscarriage. Vaccinated mothers are less likely to give influenza to their newborns, who are more likely to die. As to safety, there have been no problems for mother or fetus that have yet been discovered. The minuscule amount of antigen in the vaccine appears to have no adverse effects on either the mother or the baby and would be dwarfed by the massive amount of viral antigen exposure, as well as exposure to the adverse effects of the inflammatory response, that would occur from a wild influenza infection. Now, none of these studies probably meet the standards demanded by Dr. Jefferson, but really, as a clinician, it is very difficult to ignore such a preponderance of data. Dr. Jefferson continues, Pregnancy is part of, is a physiologic state, as is everything alive. It is the reason why our race is still on the planet, duh. So there's nothing wrong with pregnancy. That is, it is normal, I might say, and potentially filled with influenza-related complications. Dr. Jefferson continues, Pregnant women, therefore, are healthy adults, and we do know the performance of the inactivated influenza vaccine in healthy adults because there are quite a number of trials, clinical trials, that's experiments, 
me summarize them and to give you an idea, we need to vaccinate about 33 to 99 people to avoid one set of influenza symptoms. Again, the narrow perspective of Dr. Jefferson. Maternal death, spontaneous abortion, smaller birth weight babies, postpartum influenza in the newborn are additional worries, and the data strongly points to the benefit from vaccination. If you fail to consider the preponderance of information and the multitudinous effects of both influenza and vaccination, you do the whole topic a major and distorted disservice. But that is Dr. Jefferson's modus operandi, to frame the discussion narrowly, minimizing the numerous problems and comorbidities of influenza. Jefferson continues, Another consequence is the idea that influenza-like illness, flu, and its ravages can be prevented or minimized with influenza vaccine. Cochrane reviews show that vaccines can only affect, at the most, some 5 to 15 percent of annual flu burden, since this is the proportion of the flu who truly have influenza. The specificity of approach, go for influenza, disregard all other causes of flu, is probably based on what I call availability creep. Let's concentrate on influenza because it is one of the ones we have specifics for. But if you think about it, it is a wonderful utopian policy against a syndrome as unspecific as this. Just think of the role other viruses play. In my opinion, the lack of logic in this thinking is stunning, end quote. And that's Dr. Jefferson from another article. So disingenuous. We use flu-like illness as a surrogate since it is not practical to test everyone for influenza. Given that the worldwide these annual epidemics result in about 3 to 5 million cases of severe illness and about 250,000 to 500,000 deaths, whittling 10% off that number, in addition to the effects on pregnancy, cardiovascular disease, and productivity lost, is a reasonable goal. We go after influenza because of all the complications associated with the illness, in addition to the almost unique morbidity and mortality that primary influenza can cause. And we also fret, as historically influenza epidemics have killed millions, and all infectious disease and public health doctors remember the 1919 pandemic. Influenza often is so much more than an influenza-like illness. Dr. Jefferson continues, The harm side, the safety side, is understudied. Although numerous studies in huge numbers of patients with a wide variety of underlying medical issues have failed to reveal any consistent, important, or unusual complications of the vaccine, and the disease is almost always worse than the vaccine. Quote, It is very difficult to actually give you an accurate breakdown of the potential risk of the vaccine, unquote. Because if you stick to the plausible risks of vaccination based on plausible physiology, there really aren't that many. If you include being hit by asteroids as a potential risk, then yeah, it's hard to give an accurate breakdown. After decades of giving the vaccine, there are not any major risks, especially compared to the real and well-documented risks of influenza. It is always about the relative risks and benefits. The vaccine is safer by many orders of magnitude than the real disease. Now, when I first wrote this essay, 
the issue of narcolepsy in the Scandinavian countries in people who got a particular strain of the vaccine was new, and it is still being evaluated. But there may be, with one type of the vaccine in one population, an increased risk of narcolepsy. That is still being worked out as to why. Quote, there is potential risk to the mother. There is potential risk to the unborn baby. There is the potential risk, the certain risk, to the taxpayer. And that is something else that should not be forgotten. One gets the feeling from his tone that this really fries his bacon, that his money is being spent on other people's health care. He continues, There are very, very few studies on pregnancy women, and none of them of high quality. True, but they all show benefit and no risk. So I was taught in medical school, the less you do to pregnant women, the better it is. That is so disingenuous, the use of the naturalistic fallacy, that it makes my teeth hurt. The reason we do not have maternal death rates of sub-Saharan Africa as high as 1,100 per 100,000 live births, where they really do a less is better approach, is the multiple interventions that we do for and to the mother and the baby. Quote, this, of course, it goes contrary to modern medicine. Yeah, let's go deliver our children in the third world. He continues, if you like, which is more and more interventional and more and more preventative between inverted commas. I think he was making air quotes. As far as effects on the fetus are concerned of the vaccine, the second person, which is involved in this equation, I would be very, very cautious about vaccinating unborn babies, even with dead vaccines like these ones, end quote. Despite all the data that shows benefit? Sure, the data isn't perfect, but it's hard to kill a few babies and mothers for the sake of a perfect study. And it is nothing compared to what influenza, wild in disease, does to both mother and fetus. There is no 1 in 10 spontaneous abortion rate associated with vaccination, as there was with the 1919 pandemic. Of course, live vaccines are out of the question for an unborn baby. Now that is the closest he gets to a declarative sentence. I have read the interview over and over, and I realize Dr. Jefferson insinuates a lot but always manages to maintain plausible deniability. He never actually comes out and says, don't get the flu vaccine. I wonder in passing if he ever gets vaccinated. I wonder if he's had the flu vaccine. Although what little data there is suggests that the live vaccine is safe for the fetus. And we all know that wild influenza virus is so much better for mom and child. They continue. Does that answer your question? No. Yes. It is not the case where they are testing a vaccine. Should they also not have pregnant women and all the women with different diseases that should be required to take the vaccine included in the vaccine studies? Since when I read the literature, I saw they were excluding the very people who would later be included in using it. To me, that is a contradiction. Jefferson, it's not. It doesn't necessarily have to be a contradiction because experiments, trials are quite artificial in the way they are carried out seldom are carried out in a perfect experiment. And there lies, and there lies some of the weakness of, of the design, of the particular design of the study, inasmuch as the more you select of the population, 
the less the results are applicable to the real population, so-called reference population, unquote. There's always the difficulty in medicine. How do the results of clinical trials apply to the patient you are treating today? When I was a resident, it seemed that all the studies for cardiovascular disease were done in old white smoking veterans. There are innumerable variables in influenza vaccine. The variability of the virus, the variability in the vaccine, the patient comorbidities, and probably the genetic ability of the patient to respond to both the vaccine and wild-type infection. It seems daunting and will allow you to continuously quibble about the applicability of the results of a given vaccine trial. You never tested in, in albino humpback dwarfs. On the other hand, generally speaking, exposure to antigen often leads to protective immunity, most of the time in most people for most infections. With influenza, it is a matter of trying to maximize those effects in a heterogeneous population and why flu vaccination is better approached as a population effect than an individual effect. Quote, so some health bodies have turned to commissioning what they call real-life studies or studies on real-life data. These are almost certainly observational studies, the vast majority observational studies. The difference between a trial and an observational study is that in a trial, the researcher decides who gets the vaccine and who doesn't, who gets the vaccine and who gets the control. In an observational study, that decision has already been made. The observation study, therefore, is probably closer to reality. The only problem with it is that the design itself is a carrier of problems. It is very, very difficult to have good, well-designed, prospective observational studies. We do not know if the studies in the United States in the 90s, huge database studies, which showed influenza vaccine effect were so biased as to give the wrong answer, to give an answer that was completely implausible. End of quote. I'm not entirely certain to what Dr. Jefferson is referring here. The protection from the vaccine from mortality when there is no flu circulating? I am suspicious that that reduction in mortality may be due to a reduction in deaths that follow from any infection. Patients who are hospitalized for infections have a higher post-discharge mortality rate than those who are admitted without infections, and all infections seem to lead to an increase in myocardial infarctions, pulmonary embolism, and stroke, a risk that can persist for months after the infection. I wonder if the implausible effects of the flu vaccine that he refers to are due to the lack of the subsequent vascular events associated with many infections. In other words, you don't get flu because you have the flu vaccine, and then you don't have a long-term vascular event as a consequence of being in the pro-inflammatory, pro-thrombotic state that is an infection. Or perhaps he could be referring to the decrease in death from all causes. But in that article, where he alludes to in other interviews, the definition of all-cause mortality is not stated. Since the cause of death is not certain, it is difficult to say if it was implausible or not. Interesting is a better term, and given the widespread morbidities that f occur after influenza, it is worthy of investigation. He continues, So we have to be very careful. In general, the answer is we have to design better trials prospectively, 
and enrolling significant population. But these trials cost money. And of course, you have the problem that as the decisions have already been made on evidence that is very low quality, what bodies like CDC say is unethical to carry out trials now. Well, while placebo trials are not unethical in the United States, it doesn't prevent interesting comparisons of vaccinated and unvaccinated populations. While not randomized or placebo control, efficacy with huge populations vaccinated and unvaccinated have been done and compared with good results. For example, in China, they looked at the what occurred in students who were vaccinated versus unvaccinated, and they found that for H1N1, the vaccine effectiveness was 87.3%. Pretty good. This is by no means a perfect study, but it demonstrated good vaccine efficacy in a healthy population with a good vaccine disease match. And I'd add that there was no Guillain-Barre in the vaccine group, and those who got vaccinated were unlikely to pass influenza along to the 50,000 or so parents and the 10,000 or so grandparents that the 25,000 in each group certainly had. No. How do we actually know, unless we have two groups of people, say 5,000 people who have not had the vaccine and 5,000 cross-match who do have the vaccine, and then do regular workup on them to see whether there is really efficacy, because rarely do they use a non-vaccinated group against a vaccinated group. More often than not, they use one vaccine against another, and often say it's a placebo, and then we find out the placebo was not a sugar pill, there's actually active ingredients in the placebo, and that you wouldn't have known that from your physician or nurse or hospital or pharmacist or the CDC or the FDA, it's only when you take away all of the promotion and you look at the actual hard beginning data that all these flaws and most people do not aware that these flaws exist. Your thoughts, Jefferson? Well, I entirely agree. Agree with what? I have reread that question multiple times. More often than not, they use one vaccine against another and then often say it's a placebo. And then we find out that the placebo was not a sugar pill, that there were actually active ingredients in the placebo. blah bloody blah What the hell is he talking about? I mean, how could you entirely agree with that? It was gibberish. Quote, we published in 2009, we published a review of 270 of these studies, and we found that only 5% of these studies were reliable, had reliable design, and were reliably carried out. But that does not mean they were all worthless. Dr. Jefferson and Mr. Null talk as if clinical studies are either perfect and valid or imperfect or worthless, all or nothing. The medical literature has a spectrum of quality, and just because the study is not perfect does not necessarily mean it is worthless. Each study needs to be evaluated on its strengths and weaknesses and in the context of the entire literature. Again, the preponderance of data from all sources demonstrates variable efficacy of the influenza vaccine. And the unstated assumption with which at one time I would have agreed is that the bias due to poor methodology in studies would overestimate the efficacy of interventions. Maybe not. There was one interesting model of the flu vaccine that actually suggests that bias resulted in an underestimation of the efficacy of the flu vaccine. Fascinating, huh? 
Quote, we found an average difference between observed and true vaccine effectiveness of 211.9%. Observed vaccine effectiveness underestimated the true effectiveness in 88% of model iterations. Our findings suggest that potential bias in case control studies that we examine tend to result in underestimates of true influenza vaccine effects. It is, as I keep saying, complicated. We also found, continues Dr. Jefferson, that studies which have been funded by industry were more likely to be published on prestigious journals. That, for you listeners, means cited more and more in the public eye compared to other studies which had not been funded by pharmaceutical industry. But these studies funded by pharmaceutical industry of influenza vaccines were not better quality, nor were they larger. So there must have been another reason why medical journals found them irresistible, which had nothing to do with design or the results or the size of the studies. I find this intimation of a sinister reason for the differences disingenuous and kind of creepy. I presume he is referring to his study where two reviewers independently unblinded to the authors and institutions of the article extracted data from these studies in three phases. Seriously. Readers working for Dr. Jefferson, someone with a long-standing and well-known antipathy towards influenza vaccines, are expected to read papers and come up with unbiased summaries for their boss? Give me a break. The reviewers had plenty of opportunity to be biased in their interpretation of the studies. Dr. Jefferson makes it sound like there was a selection of studies from which the editors could choose, like fish at Pike Street Market. Oh, I'll take that study, thank you very much. The important question is whether these articles were submitted and rejected based on funding or were the government-sponsored trials only submitted to, say, lower-impact journals and the editors of the higher-impact journals never had the opportunity to be bribed, um, no, I mean, reject them. We don't know. And for someone to complain about the conclusions of the influenza vaccine literature because of sloppy methodology and overstated conclusions, making an insinuation based on a sloppy study with poor methodology and overstated conclusions, does not really add to his credibility. The relation of study quality, concordance, take-home message, funding, and impact in studies of influenza vaccines, a systematic review, the article referred to above, nicely demonstrates that when there is an axe to grind, how it easy it is to give that axe a sharp edge with a touch of spin. Dr. Jefferson does like to position himself as a rare soul in a sea of venality and corruption. Quote, much has been said about the role of experts in advising policymakers on both seasonal and pandemic influenza. We know that some of them have been parsimonious with declaring their interests and their role as members of lobbying organizations which are financed by industry, and some did not think it important to disclose pretty hefty industry funding of their institutions. We know that transparency is probably not taken very seriously by WHO. However, few people realize that even experts with no ties to industry or government civil service have career motivations, especially if they make policy and evaluate its effects. 
I'll leave the description of how this works to Dr. Philip Alcabes, A-L-C-A-B-E-S, in his modern classic Dread. We are supposed to be prepared for a pandemic of some kind of influenza because the flu watchers, the people who make a living out of studying the virus and who need to attract continued grant funding to keep studying it, must persuade the funding agencies of the urgency of fighting the coming plague. Parenthetically, I guess they don't remember the 1919 pandemic. As someone whose career has been spent trying to prevent people from dying of infectious diseases, I'm always, I have to admit, a wee bit, say, offended by these kinds of propositions. Before you start wondering how I can myself escape this kind of criticism, I would like to inform readers that two months before the hearing, I circulated a note of activities and interests in which I, Dr. Jefferson, disclose all that I can think are relevant to this debate. The note was sent to the Secretariat and can be viewed by any member of the commission. In addition, I would like to remind you that I have written and stated to the media countless times since 2004, beware of catastrophic predictions. Stick to the scientific evidence, all the evidence, not just what support your theories. Dr. Jefferson tends to torpedo the conclusion of his own work. Taking the modest efficacy of the flu vaccine and treatment in the Cochrane and other meta-analysis, making sure we know that the glass is half empty, not half full, much of what he has published demonstrates modest flu vaccine efficacy, although he does his very best to muddy the water about his own studies. Quote, Influenza vaccines are efficacious in preventing cases of influenza in children older than two years of age, but little evidence is available for children younger than two years of age. This review, again a Jefferson Cochran review, showed that reliable evidence on influenza vaccine is thin, but there is evidence of widespread manipulation of conclusion and spurious notoriety of the studies. So, he says that the flu vaccine works according to the data and then sabotages it. Attention, attention. This is the pot speaking. The kettle is black. Not me, just the kettle. That is all. If you go back and look at the Cochrane reviews on influenza, they show influenza vaccine have a modest effect in reducing influenza symptoms and working days lost. Influenza vaccines are efficacious in children older than two years old. Amantadine prevents 23 cases of clinical influenza. In fact, when you look at the Cochrane reviews, they suggest what I've been saying all along, that influenza has a modest effect in preventing influenza and influenza-like illness, depending on how you do your definitions. It's not a great vaccine that is efficacious with minimal side effects. But in every one of the meta-analysis, they go out of their way to show how you can't trust the meta-analysis that the Cochrane reviews are doing. But remember, I gave up on the Cochrane review a long time ago since they did a meta-analysis on acupuncture for mumps and children where they did a meta-analysis of a grand total of one study. A meta-analysis on one study for an intervention that is magic. Please. I sometimes think that they are running out of topics to meta-analyze. Next, they will do a meta-analysis and systematic review on the written content of cereal boxes. 
And this review on mumps and acupuncture was Dr. Jefferson's group, the Cochrane Acute Respiratory Infections Group. I know, guilt by association again. Quote, null. Also, if there are almost 200 different infectious organisms that can cause flu-like symptoms and there is no standardized testing and proper diagnosis for people, when they go to the doctor or clinic to be treated for a flu-like illness, then what are we to make of all the warnings given about the seriousness of a particular flu season and also the World Health Organization's record of predicting which strains of flu should be used in a given year's flu vaccine? It's rather dismal. And then there are studies such as the Danish study that those receiving a seasonable flu vaccine in 2009 were more likely to get infected with sine flu, and the Canadian studies seem to confirm the same finding. So even the predictions of the flu strains are frequently inaccurate, and what good is the flu vaccine against other flu strains not in the formulation? As I mentioned, it depends in part on what flu antigens you develop a response to. As H1N1 demonstrated, some people may develop universal antibody. I feel great sympathy for those in public health. They cannot win. The circulating strains of influenza every year are impossible to consistently predict correctly. And if the season is bad and they don't call it in advance, or if the season is bad and they predict a mild season, they get criticized. Jefferson The trademark of influenza and all acute respiratory infections, let's call it influenza-like illness, is its unpredictability. That's where the name comes from. It comes from the, and I did not understand the word, which is Italian for influence of the planets. Rut-row. The use of a word origin is always a diagnostic clue. I'm surprised he did not call the flu a dis-ease. He continues, because in the Middle Ages, they could not understand why these local epidemics came and went. Mainly benign, they are self-limiting, they last a few days, and they are unpredictable. End of quote. My understanding is that influenza was particularly bad in the era of poor nutrition and hygiene. Its English name was the gasping oppression with fever, cough, and a sensation of constriction of the heart and lungs began to rage seemingly everywhere at once. And it was not so mild. Quote, To observers in the 16th century, influenza came to be recognized as a distinct disease with consistent clinical features, including the acute onset of fever, headache, cough, and myalgia, with uncommon complications that included pneumonia and fatal outcomes in pregnant women and their fetuses, in infants, in young children, and in the old and debilitated. Its epidemiologic features were understood to include explosive spread with high attack rates and directional movement along travel and trade routes, prevalence in a town or city for no more than four to six weeks, appearance at unpredictable levels and at any time of the year, and low to moderate population mortality. There is a, as Dr. Jefferson continues, There is a very, very long and complex literature reporting, for instance, what happened in the year of the French Revolution, which I believe was also the year of the inauguration of George Washington in 1789. There were two outbreaks on the East Coast and one on the West Coast, which happened almost, emphasis mine, synchronously, like springing mushrooms. You can't blame that on air travel. 
almost only counts for horseshoes and hand grenades, although I can find no specific information on the start of the 1789 epidemic in the U.S., it appears to have started in the East Coast and then hit the West by way of the Caribbean and Central America. Flu can travel fast. The 1919 pandemic went around the world three times in one year, and that also was long before jet travel. It appears, continues Dr. Jefferson, that in 1789 there was no air travel. Ooh, sarcasm. And there was air travel. Birds. There's always the worry that avian flu, H5, will get here, here being the United States, in a migratory bird. Although fortunately that appears to be an unlikely event. Although unlikely events do tend to happen. Jefferson continues. It is an understudied, the real science behind this is understudied. It is covered in dogma. It is covered in public health marketing. It is covered really in poor science, as you pointed out. Very difficult to find good quality research in this area. It is not an easy area to research, of course. I don't really know what he's talking about here. Flu spread? Vaccines? What does dogma have to do with the 1789 flu outbreak? Public health marketing? I have to admit, it really gripes my cookies how he dismisses an enormous number of hardworking professionals whose main goal is to prevent as many people as possible from getting sick or dying from influenza and other diseases and an enormous supporting literature as dogma marketing. But it's Dr. Jefferson. He knows better. Quote, And the influenza vaccine mutates its coat, changes its coat very frequently. So it's a... It's a running target, the influenza virus. It's a running target. It changes. And you are quite right. Clinically, it is impossible to tell an influenza-like illness, which you call the flu, caused by influenza virus from that caused by any other agents. Bear in mind, Gary, that some studies show that almost 40% of these episodes have no recognizable cause. So, it's interesting, but that has nothing to do with flu vaccine efficacy. So that may mean they are caused by microorganisms that we cannot culture, true, which we cannot grow, very true, which we cannot recognize or are unknown, which is true, or they may not even be infectious. They may be stress-related. What? Stress causing fevers to 104, severe myalgias, headache, intractable cough, and shortness of breath? What the? I'm glad he's not my GP. So it is the completely understudied area, the good science of it, the bad science part. Well, there's tons of bad studies out there to show whatever they want to show, continues Dr. Jefferson. By that criteria, of course, all of medicine is understudied. Our knowledge of the causes of respiratory infections grows yearly, and I suppose if we were to devote the entire NIH budget to its investigation, all would be clear. The last part, tons of bad studies out there that show whatever they want to show, is again disingenuous and dismissive of a preponderance of data that shows results that Dr. Jefferson doesn't want to agree with, apparently including the conclusions of his own work. No. 
Well, I appreciate your coming in and sharing this insight with us today. We really support all your good efforts because you and your group in Rome and Italy, you're not motivated by money you will get from the pharmaceutical industries. You tell us the truth. And what you are telling us gives us a reason for pause and to demand more independent quality scientific research. Such as the quality scientific research free of financial incentive that Mr. Knoll has demonstrated for his project, including the effects of vitamin D toxicity. For those of you who don't know, Mr. Knoll made a supplement product that had too much vitamin D in it and he subsequently got toxic on vitamin D, taking his own supplements. Quote, Before people in the health sector tell us to take our flu vaccine, it's safe and effective and will prevent the flu when they do not have the scientific integrity on their side to prove their point. So we need good science, which is substantially lacking. Thank you, Dr. Jefferson, for being with us today. Jefferson, thanks for having me. When I read the Atlantic article about Dr. Jefferson, I was struck by the section that mentioned that he is ostracized at meetings, eating alone. Quote, among his fellow flu researchers, Jefferson's outspokenness has made him something of a pariah. At a 2007 meeting on pandemic preparedness in a hotel in Bethesda, Maryland, Jefferson, who had been invited to speak at the conference, was not greeted by any of the colleagues milling about in the lobby. He ate his meals in the hotel restaurant alone, surrounded by scientists amiably chatting at other tables. End of quote. And I thought at the time, what a bunch of bastards. I spend lots of time with people whom I disagree, and we have fun arguing back and forth. Just because we disagree doesn't mean we can't have a good conversation, share a beer, and be civil. Now, I'm not so certain. The interview suggests a conspiracy theorist who has a narrow viewpoint and ignores or misstates his own studies and the studies of others and prefers a simple message to the complexity of influenza and its many complications. What comes across in his interview and in his written and presumably carefully considered oeuvre is buckets of anti-influenza bias. Someone who has an opinion first, which he defends with the narrowest of data second. I guess he was interviewed in an appropriate venue, Mr. Knoll's show, after all. Yippee and Skippy. 58 minutes and 15 seconds later, we're all done with this quackcast. Don't forget that the collected essays from Science Based Medicine are now available as ebooks. The first six of a projected 12-volume series on supplements, complementary, and alternative medicine. A mere $4.99. And I understand they make excellent gifts for friends and family. See you next time. Bye.